As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Hello and welcome back to the Last Jedi on the Left podcast. Uh, we are once again on the trail of the 1999 films. And for this one, I'm joined again by returning guest Steve Hatton. Thanks. Good to be back. Yeah, uh, good to have you on again. Um, and so, like I say, with, with these ones, I kind of uh, asked people which films from 1999 they wanted to go through. And you picked up on the Blair Witch Project. Yep, absolutely. A good year, but this is eventually became one of my favourite horror films, I guess we could call it. Um, not not quite at the time, but as the years have gone by, it's really kind of uh, built up a place in my affections and it's something I look back on really fondly and do like to revisit regularly when I can get access to it. Yeah, it's um, it's a funny one because, like you say, it's it comes along kind of at the tail end of all the like the Sundance Film Festival hype, really, of like the 90s and stuff. It kind of starts with Quentin Tarantino and, and Reservoir Dogs in the early 90s, and then it kind of, this is like the last gasp of it, I think, because it, it kind of had its moment at, at Sundance Film Festival, as far as I know. And, uh, and yeah, it, it kind of feeds into that, you know, good film year kind of thing that's going on as well, I think. So um, I guess that kind of leads into what, what are your memories of seeing it for the first time? I remember there was a lot of hype because I'm old enough to have seen it first time around it was out. There was an awful lot of hype about it, about the the scariest film ever made. And obviously, as as is well documented, and I don't need to tell the story of it, the kind of um, the marketing and, and how it tapped into... I think I'm right in saying my own knowledge is 1999. The the internet was still in its infancy to me. I knew you have to used to have to go into the library and pay a few quid to get online. Um, I may have had access at home. I can't quite remember, but certainly it would have been a phone wire trailing down and the old dial tone, and then free server disconnect me after two hours, and then you'd have to connect again. Um, but I know it surfed that wave of of the internet publicity, and then there was the this is real, they've disappeared. Um, and I went to watch it at the cinema. And I remember actually at the time leaving, feeling a bit disappointed by it. And I was a bit kind of half-hearted. And I thought, actually, it's it feels like a bit of a letdown. And I remember the, the feeling in the cinema, because it was really, really full, the screening. Um, I think the feeling in the room was the same. And I left feeling a bit let down, but... I remember I had these, the Virgin Cinemas used to do this monthly pass where you could go as many times as you wanted. And I used to go like all the time to get my money's worth of it because I'm such a tight arse. Um, so I went back to revisit it. And actually, second time, it was so much better. And I could, there's like little bits I'd missed. And, and I really bought into it second time around. But first time, I remember thinking, well, all that hype and it's, it's a bit of a damp squib, really. So it's a strange one how it's just built up uh, as time's gone on for me. Um, I mean, first off, as uh, someone who's got a limitless pass at Odeon at the minute, I'm not going to say we're, we're, we're not tight arses. It's just, you just like getting your money's worth. Yeah. That's, um, that's the phrase to use, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but um, 
I think obviously I'm a little bit. I was probably a little bit young for it when it came out in the cinema, but I do remember the hype around it. I remember, oddly enough, of, of all places, I remember being at the football at Fortress Alexandra at the time, and just at half time, just hearing the two guys who sat behind, like me and my dad, talking about it and talking about, oh, have you heard about this film and the the actors who've gone missing and all this, that, and the other, and and you know the the, the kind of hype and everything that people had built up into it, and um, kind of learning about it since, like so. For me, then it was a case of I didn't watch it at the time, and then it was obviously the big hype. And then the, I think a lot of people had a similar uh, feeling as, as you did that maybe it didn't necessarily hit when the first saw it. Um, so I kind of when I eventually got around to seeing it a few years later, I'd kind of got that in the back of my mind that oh well, it was a big thing, but maybe it wasn't all that. And then going in with those lower expectations, I think it definitely. Uh, well, it blew me away, I think, for the first time I saw it. I thought, like, this is the best version of, of this particular thing that I've ever seen. Um, and, yeah, I, I really, really liked it when I when I saw it. Yeah, I think going back to it now, actually, I think once I revisit it and, and I strip away that, that day 1999 that I saw it, I actually now look back and go, do you know what? The hype the hype was right because it's, I think it's brilliant. And I, and I I don't know what what it was wrong with me on that particular day, um, but as the years have gone by, I've just and it's not a nostalgic thing. I genuinely watch it and go, "This is a, this is a great film. It's well put together, well thought out." I particularly love. I really like the start, the intro, the, the almost the legend building and the world building and the little talking heads with people, and then the scene at, at Coffin Rock. I actually quite like the setup and the lead in in it. It is quite ominous um and it sets the tone really really well so looking back now my line is actually the hype was worth it but i think i was maybe a bit naive to appreciate it when i first saw it that's fair i think yeah i can i can sort of understand where where you're coming from a little bit with that it's um it is really well done as well in that like you say that way that it starts off with the legend building and then it just kind of seeds it all throughout like the the sort of uncomfortable nature of it all um so i I guess we kind of go into you kind of touch on it a little bit there but what what are your like favorite parts of the film then what what would you say are you other scenes that particularly stick out um again i like i like the world building at the start and the legend building but what i like is it's it's a classic i think it's a commodian thing of of show don't tell and after um, it's, it's Mike. It's Mike who goes missing first, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, Mike who goes missing first, and then the 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 dubious rag that appears outside the tent, and they unwrap it. And to this day, I still couldn't tell you what it is, but it's just bloody, and it looks unpleasant, and it looks like it's part of someone. And I actually quite like the fact that you watch it and you catch a quick glimpse of it. You never really know what it is, but you know it isn't very nice. And then I like the scenes at night when you can hear whatever the noise is supposed to be, cracking, and there's all sorts of... You never really put your finger on on what it is, but it's it's there, and they're out on these woods, and they can hear things at night, and they never really unpick what it is. 
and they never really give you the answers, which I think is maybe why it frustrated a lot of people when, when it first came out. But I quite like that. I like the fact that you you just get shown stuff. You you have to kind of unpick it for yourself, and and it's those moments at at night when the attacks inverted commas come that I find really atmospheric and quite powerful. Um, so I think the early world building, and then the first few attacks, and it, the the film booms into that routine that when nightfall comes, the sense of dread sets in that I really like that the scenes in the daytime is frustration and anger and sweariness but as each day draws to a close that is when you as the audience draw your breath in and go "Uh oh here we go we're going into the night again which is what the characters in in the film do so it puts you right in there with them yeah um I think it's a good point that you bring up about you know the the show don't tell thing and the fact that it, it does that in the film. It's not ex- over explaining anything that's going on, particularly, but also it's not even really showing anything that's going on too much. Like you say, the, the thing in the, in the rags or whatever that you don't really get a good view of what it is. You can see bits of it because, because of the way it's done with the handy cams and all that kind of thing. And then, I, I mean, even the fact is that you, you pretty much don't even see the, the Blair Witch, the titular Blair Witch at all, do you? In, in the entire film. So it's, um, it's funny to sort of say, you know, although I agree with the, it's a show, don't tell. It's, it's not even really a show. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess the Blair Witch Project is the biggest con in the world because <laughs> there's no Blair Witch. There's no nothing. Um, but I like that. And I think that adds to me, the, the big thing about the film is it taps, I don't wish it to sound pretentious, into the most primal fear of everything, fear of the dark. And that's what the film's about. They're frustrated in the daytime and they're, and they're niggling each other. But at night, when you can't see, that's when they're at the most vulnerable. And it's that most, to me, that most primal of fears that it's the darkness. It's what's out there that you can't see that is most unnerving about the film. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's that, yeah, the fear of the darkness and, and fear of the unknown, isn't it? It's the... That, that effectively the characters have got, but then through that kind of way of not showing us or anything, it kind of does transport the audience to it as well, quite effectively, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I just think, I think I'm always interested in how a 2024 audience, sorry, 2023, nearly 2024 audience might view it um, because it's it's pretty lo-fi. There aren't any effects. There aren't any reveals. And to me, that that's not even part of its charm. That's part of its storytelling, and that and that's how it that's how it makes its mark. So I don't know to people who are maybe a similar age to I was when I first saw it, who've been brought up on jump scares and and stuff like. I'm trying to think of contemporary horror films that use those jump scares. I was going to say, like something like the Conjuring, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, that's the film I was struggling for. The Conjuring, how how they would take to this film that I'm, I'm conscious has been lampooned and and kind of spoofed in various other uh, mediums as well. Um, I'm always interested how they would take to it. Is the pace too slow? Is the fact that nothing is shown frustrating, or, or or would it get under their skin as it as it did me eventually? It's an interesting one, like say to say that maybe the pace would be too slow for anybody kind of used to modern horror films. But then, like, the film's 85 minutes long, I think. You know, it's... Realistically, anybody should be able to stick that out, you'd think. 
Um, but it, it would be interesting as well to see how it would affect somebody who hadn't seen it before now, given, like you say, everything, like all the, the stick figures or even the, the kind of iconic last shot of the guy facing into the corner. Snotty Heather. Snotty Heather. Snot- yes, one, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All, all of those. See, like, was it one of the scary movies did that or yeah. something as well? Yeah. Um, and so, obviously, you're kind of used to that, almost to the point, like, when I first watched Citizen Kane, for example, you know, I was much more familiar with the story because I knew The Simpsons did an episode based on it, you know, than, than anything else. And I wonder if it would have that same effect necessarily now. Yeah. I don't know. People, again, people probably watch it and, and recognize what they've seen lampooned or spoofed elsewhere and go, oh, all right, I get it now. It's, it's almost like the, the, the Statue of Liberty in Planet of Apes that's been used as, as lots of gags elsewhere. And people probably don't get it until they watch the film and go, all right, I understand now. Now I get that gag about the Statue of Liberty. Um, and they might have seen an image of a, a snotty girl with a camera pointing at herself and not really got it until they get to the, the dying embers of, of the film. But, um, I mean, it's, it's doing all right if we're comparing it to uh, to Planet of the Apes and, and Citizen Kane, I suppose, isn't it? It has, and it's, it's become, it has got iconic moments. And you, you mentioned the one at the end. Um, it's it's uh, Mike, is it Mike at the end who's facing the wall? I believe so, but I'm not 100%, Mike, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's Mike at the end who's facing the wall. Heather's snottiness to camera. Um, I think they're all kind of, they, they have become iconic moments. Um, and obviously they have because they've been kind of Mickey-taked elsewhere. Yeah, 100%. Um, I guess we kind of uh, get into like, we're getting into at least like the legacy of it and stuff like that. Um, I think it's always an interesting one because there was like an immediate follow-up pretty much, uh, in terms of the Book of Shadows, I believe it's called, Blair Witch 2. Did you ever see that one? I did see it, and do you know what? I've, I think I've watched it once, didn't like it, but the one thing that's... And I couldn't I couldn't tell you why, but the one thing that sticks in my mind is it, it was spectacularly nasty. That's the only thing that I remember. I remember go leave, go leaving it thinking, I didn't enjoy it, but I quite liked its nasty edge. Um, again, I haven't ever revisited it. Maybe I'm completely mistaken in that, but I thought it's not very good. It's not a patch on the original, but there's a real, there's something about it. And I couldn't even tell you what the moment was because I didn't really buy into it that much that I've not watched it. I don't know when the sequel came out, but it must be 20 plus years. Um, yeah. But I, I know it had a particularly spiteful edge. I don't know if you've watched it more recently and you can remember that. I mean, I I, I have watched it more recently, but it didn't it's not very sticky in the memory shall we say like I say okay so yeah. to my story behind it is um that every year there's a there's like a little challenge that runs on on letterbox which you've probably heard me talk about the yeah. social media film logging website uh, called hooptober and the whole thing is like a guy comes out and he sets out various different rules and you have to watch like 31 horror films usually in october but you, i kind of extend it i start it a little bit early usually cuz difficult watching 31 films in 31 days basically yeah. but but one of the years one one of the things one year was that you had to watch it was like the worst horror film you can access basically by the rating system on there and i think 
that was on Netflix or Prime at the time. So I was like, well, okay, I can access this. It's got horrendously low ratings. I've never got around to seeing it. Um, so I, I did watch it from that. And I think another one as well I had that year was um, An American Werewolf in Paris. So another sort of iconic horror film that had a shoddy sequel that's not really even connected in any way. So I kind of always mix them up a little bit in my mind because of that. But both of them kind of felt like they were just rather generic-y teen horror films that had been kind of popular in the in the late 90s and early 2000s and stuff and that they were just kind of leaning into that a little bit yeah i mean i think from my memory again quite sketchy there are so many different ways that you could you could run a sequel to blair witch and i remember watching it thinking this isn't this isn't the solution this isn't the way to do a sequel and i think it i think the 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 reviews you mentioned on Letterbox, I think financially it probably died a bit of a death as well, which obviously was the end of that that franchise, really, wasn't it? Um, yeah, pretty much. It didn't it didn't go on to to become the next Scream or anything like that. Although it did have a remake um, a few years back. Yeah, a few years back. Um, I've watched it. Um, I think it was. I'm just I'm just trying to remember what what. Um, what score I gave it on IMDb, which is always a bit of a, a teller for me. Um, I think it was okay. I don't think it was a disaster. I gave it, a, I gave it a six. Okay, yeah, it's probably not that great. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that was another attempt to, to return to flog. As you do, you return and flog the dead horse. But I think its moment has gone, hasn't it? It was very much of a moment. Although there was a film, I don't know if you've seen it called The Last Broadcast. I haven't no preceded it that was that again is is found footagey um and there was a lot after Blair Witch came out there was a lot of hype about actually no Blair Witch is here but actually the first proper found footage film which obviously is a lie anyway because you go back to like Cannibal Holocaust and things um is this film called The Last Broadcast which is very again is found footage and the final kind of twist of it is very very different um but that's worth a watch as well. It's very sort of found footage of that time period. I think it comes out a year or so before Blair Witch. It's a very different piece of work, but still quite interesting and engaging. That's interesting. I'll, I mean, I'll definitely have to check it. Because I think found footage is always like a bit of a... I, I guess like a, a favourite of mine. I, I usually do quite like... Even when the films are not great, I usually quite like the sort of elements of found footage. You know, there's always a character in there that's saying, you know, put the camera down. We're going through hell here. Just, just, and and they never do. And you're like, because I, it's one of those kind of tropes that I quite enjoy. Um, I just have a look at the, the, the remake as well. So it was 2015, I think it was. 2016, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, directed by Adam Wingard, who I know a lot of people are kind of really high on him as being like a, a good horror director, and I think I was a bit the same as you. I wasn't overly fussed on it. I felt felt like it was just a remake of the original one, but without that kind of lo-fi charm. Yeah, I've just checked. He's um he directed um Your Next, which is a fantastic horror film. Right, okay, funny as well. Um, yeah, and he and um. I think the guest as well with the uh, 
forget the actor's name now. I'm just looking at him. Uh, Dan Stevens in it. But um, you're next. Really, really smart, savvy, kind of updated slasher. Um, streets ahead of um, that Blair Witch reboot. It's interesting that you've said that then because I've not seen your next or the guest. Um, and, and like a lot of people kind of rave about Adam Wingard and all this and the other. And I had seen Blair Witch and I have seen the bit that he did on um, VHS. I don't know if you've seen yeah. that, which I didn't think like his bit was all that good in that. And then other than that, he's gone on and done like the latest, I think he's doing Godzilla and Kong films now. So it's kind of, he's, he's drifted away from it a little bit. And I'm just kind of, maybe that I need to see those to kind of understand why people revere him so much, I guess. Yeah, I think the guest is, the guest is, I know we're going off, off topic a little bit here, but the guest is a bit of an 80s kind of stranger in your home invasion kind of throwback, um, whereas your next is proper classic style slasher horror done with, with some really, really dark, humorous touches. Um, I really liked it. I thought it was a brilliant film and a great reinvention of that type of film. And it's got a brilliant final line as well, which is hilarious. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to, I will have to check those two out. Um, I guess we'll, we'll kind of get back on track a little bit. Yeah. Sorry. Gone off on a bit That's of a horror fine. tangent there. No, it's fine. Um, but yeah, I, I guess we'll kind of, cause we'll, I'll bring it back around by sort of saying about VHS. And obviously that was another found footage horror that kind of by this point is like a long line of like it it's not Blair Witch was not the first one as we mentioned because like Cannibal Holocaust was out in the 70s or whatever um 80s early 80s I think but um kind of after that there became a lot more it became a lot more in vogue to do you can do your horror film on a smaller budget if you do it as a found footage type thing and, and you've got like uh Wreck I don't know if you saw that one I haven't seen Wreck, no. No, it's a Re- block, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a Spanish one. Yeah. Uh, that That's pretty good. You've got, like, uh, Paranormal Activity obviously came along. Um, and then even things like Cloverfield a little bit, if you want to go into the, the monster films yeah. as well and stuff like that. So it did kind of – it's obviously got, like, a, a legacy that comes from that. Um, I know other, other little notes that I'd got is that, obviously, all the, char- the three characters in the film – are all playing kind of themselves a little bit, uh, or at least characters that have got the same name as themselves. And uh, um, Heather has since legally changed her name because of the film and because of everybody knew she was Heather from Blair Witch, and it kind of bugged her, I guess, for a while. I guess it brought its own baggage with it, didn't it, really? Yeah, I guess. I mean, especially around the time of, like, in the marketing material, you're widely being told to the world that you're dead. I think they did. I'm sure, and I'm sure this is a well-known fact. They were they were quoted on IMDb as as missing, weren't they? At the initial time, um, they were they were the cast were listed as as missing to kind of build into that whole story, that whole narrative they built around it. Yeah, that was it. And I think they they did like particularly around like Sundance and like around the premiere and that they made up like missing posters of the of the three actors and stuff as well yeah and there's loads of really good um marketing i i bought a book called the legend 
of the Blair Witch and it had all these mocked up documents and legal documents and, and newspaper cuttings and it it wasn't really a book it was just a collection of Blair Witch paraphernalia like before and after um, the video and, and it kind of just built the myth it was really nerdy, but I really liked it. Um, and it built the myth of the story even more. And I think there was lots of stuff like that. Like the website at the time was really interactive and was really ahead of its time for the late 90s and obviously did a lot of the push for the film. I think that's that's one thing as well, that, that there is absolutely no way you could get away with this kind of thing nowadays no. because of where the internet was back then. Like say, it was early internet, you were like I said, maybe people had it at home and, and my memory of that is kind of, yeah, you can go on, but you've got to, you can only go on after like six o'clock at night and stuff like that, you know, because that's how it was back then. Whereas nowadays with social media and everything like that, that the actresses and actresses would just be hunted down within hours and pictures taken of them and this, that and the other. Um, so it kind of is very much of its time in that way. Yeah, I think like we said earlier, it, it, it is very much a piece of its time. But I think, I think the themes, and you could you could see, although the marketing is of its time, you go actually, you you could transpose this and stick this into twenty twenty three, and actually as a narrative, it would it would still work. You know, you'd lose your mobile phone signal, your batteries would run out. So actually, the story still stands up, but obviously the way it was marketed and and, and kind of sold to the public. Um, those days are gone. Yeah, I understand that, definitely. Um, probably be a, a little bit, I think, especially like found footage films in general, but this in, in particular would be an easier to sell to people of like, if you're lost in the woods and you're recording, like you're videoing stuff, then you would just be videoing it on your phone as opposed to carrying around a, a camera and stuff. Yeah. A little bit more, a little bit make more sense nowadays, at least that element of it. Yeah, absolutely. You 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 can understand people keeping recording nowadays, but um, rather than than the narrative in the film. Yeah, definitely. That kind of kind of hits on to then, I guess the sort of final point. Now, one thing I've been asking guests on this is, uh, in their opinion, who owns the film, and that could be uh, you think that you know if you think back that this film would be belong to a particular director or uh, the actor or something, um, or it could even be like the audience in general. Um, so in your opinion, and I think this is one of the more tougher ones, but in your opinion, who do you think owns the film? I think the two brothers, they are two brothers, I'm sure they are, the two brothers who made the film own it, because I believe I'm right in saying that those noises, the attacks on the tent, that's all them out there. And I think I'm right in saying, actually sometimes the actors didn't know what was going to happen. So those reactions were real because they knew something was going to happen, but they didn't know where and they didn't know how. So I just think having the front to go, no, let's take these three guys. Let's take our gear. Let's go to the woods. Let's make this film. You guys go there. We're going to disappear. Occasionally we're going to pop up and we're going to scare the pants off you. We're going to pull it all together and we're going to edit it into this. I, I think those two brothers, Ed, Mirik, Mirik, Mirik. Exactly. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the two brothers behind it, they are, they own the film. The cast give great performances. I, I, I genuinely think they do. I think they grow into it as the film develops. But I think for the vision, for the innovative way they made it, and the innovative way they they then marketed it, I think the two brothers, to me, 
they they own Blair Witch Project. Um, I, I think that's pretty fair, to be honest. Like you say, the as far as I know, that the two of them, uh, like I say, just kind of came up with the idea while they were in school or whatever, effectively. And then, like you say, they've, they've done it off. There was no real script. There was sort of rough outline, but it wasn't a, a shooting script as, as what you'd expect from most films. And like you say, then they've just basically terrorised three people in the woods for a couple of weeks or whatever it was. And I don't think they've ever gone on to have like A-plus style careers, but I think they are both still working effectively in TV or films. or So, that, you know, they've... they've They've done what they were effectively set out to do in, in terms of give themselves a career with it, and uh, but this is always going to be their shining moment, I think. I imagine they've probably done quite well out of it. Yeah, they've probably set them up for life, has they? But as you say, it's it's one of those films. You know, this is your first film. Where where do you go from? You know, arguably whatever people thought of it at the time, it was a massive success and it was hugely influential. Where do you go from there once you've once you've made that? It's very difficult, and the nature of the film itself. Where where do you go? Do you just become a found footage person, or do you try and branch out? And and I think they've kind of not really done any of those things really, but they're still they've they've got their place in in the horror hall of fame, if you like. Yeah, definitely. Um, they're, they're always going to have that that moment, even if they didn't go on to become the next. Robert Rodriguez or, or whoever from, you know, that kind of scene at the time. But yeah, um, I guess that kind of that kind of rounds off our conversation. Um, I don't know if you've got any any other points you want to bring up or. Um, it's really funny because I used to because I'm I probably mentioned the last one and the last pod I did with you that I'm a teacher um, and I teach drama and we I used to use it. I used it around early 90s um, as a bit of stimulus for drama work, because it's actually if you think about it, it's actually quite theatrical in that you've got a cast of three and arguably although although the woods are allegedly vast it's one location so there's lot it's got lots of qualities that lent itself to to a piece of theater so we used it as a kind of stimulus for the the, the thefts to go off and, and do their own devising work uh, i must have used it up to about 2006 so a good sort of seven years after it came out and you know what? It still stood up, and obviously the world had changed a little bit by that point. We're not talking as drastically as it as it has now, but it still stood up those years later, and used to sort of switch the lights off and gather everybody round. Um, and it did terrify some of them, and it, and it really, really worked. And it's interesting to see that a few years on, it still did have that impact and, and that power, um, albeit not as far into the future as we as we are now. Um, so that was one of the things I always found it quite a theatrical kind of uh, of piece. You know, you've got that look, that very small cast, and arguably, really an enclosed setting, isn't it? Even though the woods are sprawling, um, and it was always interesting seeing their response to it. Yeah, that's that is very interesting to be fair. And like you say, I, I do wonder, you know, if if you did like say sit sit down a, a bunch of the students nowadays and show them necessarily what their reaction would be. But um, or to what point you could have, you know, or even if it, that was as far as you could go with it, kind of thing, in terms of the the years go by or whatever. But um, but yeah, that is that is interesting, and it's it's a good point, really. Like I say, we can never really be sure of how big the woods are. I think in it because we we can be told it's a huge wood, but 
they flip the camera around a couple of times and you can show different angles of different things. It's a wood at the end of the day. I haven't got a clue. They could have done about a 20 meter, 20 meter radius or something. And, and you'd have been, you'd have been none the wiser, I think. Yeah. But no, to me, it, it works. And again, as someone who, it's another Kermodian thing in that you, you get what from a film, what you bring to it. And when I was a kid, sort of 14, 15, my mates, my female mates had some tents and we regularly just used to find a random field, probably normally belonging to an irate farmer. And we'd, we'd say to our parents, I'm going to go and stay at Lee's house or I'm going to go and stay at Gaz's house. And we wouldn't. We'd all cross-reference our stories and we'd go and camp out for a night. Um, and actually, I think when I went back to the film, I could almost sort of see myself there going, I've done this. We've, we've like pitched up in the middle of nowhere obviously not the vast alleged woods that are in here in the film, but um, it's that thing of, oh, I've been here and I can kind of empathise with these characters, albeit I wasn't terrorised by a, a, a witch-like monstrosity. But I have woken up in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, and we've gone, what was that noise, Gaz? Did you hear it? What was it? Um, so I kind of, that kermode, you know, you get what from a film what you bring to it, so that I've probably got that, that investment in it as a piece of cinema. Yeah, I think I'm with you as well on that as, like, you know, you, I've um, I've gone camping again after after seeing this. You're always listening a little bit more intently for any noises in the woods, and always praying that you've not got little piles of sticks and stones next to your tent when you wake up in the morning, like yeah, or a rag with some bloody goo in it, <laughs> all that, especially that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, like I say, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. No, not at all. It's a pleasure, pleasure. Great film. Always happy to talk about it. Yes, I very much. I enjoyed revisiting it again for this, like I say, and uh, I, I, I personally think it holds up. But again, like you say, you, you bring what you, you, you know, you get what you bring to these films. So maybe I'm bringing the fact that I already know it's a brilliant film. But um, but yeah, like I say, thanks for coming on. Um, I don't know if you've got anything you want to plug or... No, I don't have, as you know, I'm Lone Wolf. I don't have anything to plug. Just a random Twitter account spouting nonsense. Very good. Um well, like I say, people can get me in all the usual places. Uh, Twitter is AaronLewis33. Letterboxd and Instagram is LastJedi on the left. Um, but thanks for coming on, Steve. And for everyone else, until next time, goodbye. <laughs>